Let's read this passage. Um, one, one, of the, one of the places I'm going with this sermon, this wasn't going to be my introduction, but it is now. But um, the German philosophers came up with this word for this, this unsettled feeling that we constantly feel this side of heaven. You know, we're built for this, this ultimate world um, that's going to last forever and where people don't die and things don't decay and break down and instead they get newer and fresher and brighter every day. That's the world where we were made for and, and that's what we, every one of us long for. We're all grown and with creation. And um, German philosophers have came up a home, a, a, with a word for it uh, called umheimlich and it just means unsettled. Um, it means not at, it's, it's not at homeness is what the word means. And, and I think that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. And that's kind of where we're going because he's trying to tell us how to stand firm this side of heaven. And, and the Christian life is hard. And this, and this life, this world um, is, is painful. Uh, it's difficult. It's tragic a lot of times. And um, it's hard this side of heaven. And Paul is wanting us to stand firm. In the midst of that, in the midst of this not at homeness, and um, and so let me let me read this passage for us. Philippians chapter three. May you hear God's word. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press home to take hold of that, to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Some translations say that I, I'm taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, joining in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on eternal things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. May he just bless the preaching and the teaching of his word here uh, this morning. Um, so the Apostle Paul he, as he says, he's been gripped by something. He's been taken hold of by something. And his whole post-conversion life, ever since, you know, Jesus got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, um, he's been, he's just had this goal. He, he's been taking hold of something, and now he's trying to take hold. He's been, uh, he's been pressed down upon, and now he's pressing on towards it. And, um, and if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you really have an idea of what he's talking about because that's what a Christian is, is somebody who's been taken hold of by God and your life is never the same after that and you're now on this journey, you're now on, on this mission, if you will. And um, Paul's whole post-conversion life, he was trying to hunt down this prize 
this goal, this upward call of God, as he says here, okay? And the Christian life, it is hard work. Uh, it is difficult. We live in a world uh, that has been bruised and broken by the fall. Uh, we have all been bruised and broken by the fall. Um, as I said in the introduction, life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is painful. In many ways, life is tragic. Um, and how do you deal with it? How do you strain forward? Um, he, he's telling us here how to live the Christian life. And all of these words that he uses here, they just entail a lot of effort, straining forward to, like this sprinter, you know, running this race. Um, two times in this passage, he talks about pressing on, to, pressing on to make this my own, pressing on towards this goal. And, um, you know, that word pressing on here, it's, it's the, like, um, like I don't know if, it, who in this room, like if you're big hunters or anything like that, and, um, but it's like, like a hunter tracking down a deer. Um, it, if you're a deer hunter, like what, all, the, all that goes into you pressing toward, like it's a lot of work, a lot of, lot of effort that goes into that, hunting down deer, turkey. Actually, the, the, the Greek word is exactly the word that is used to describe Paul's unwavering persecution of Christians before his conversion, right? He was pressing in on them. He was turning, like he was trying to get that stomp out, right? Now it's that word is he's using, he's pressing towards this goal of uh, this heavenward goal. Um, something's happened, something happened in Paul's life where he was gripped, he was changed, it completely reoriented his life, in the passage just before this, he, he starts talking about all the things that he thought was so great about him. And once Jesus came into his life, all those things that he thought was so great about him, all his credentials, all, his, all the great things on his spiritual resume, he says, but now that I know Jesus, I consider all that stuff rubbish. I, I consider all that stuff trash compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And he's telling us here, if you want to stand firm, you've got to remember who you are as a Christian. He tells us all these things about himself. He does that in this passage leading up to here where he does list off all these credentials. And he, just, and he talks about these things that, that used to give him all his security, all his strength as he moved out into the world. Okay? And he's telling, these, he, then he starts, he's telling us these things that are true about him so that we'll know these things are true about us. And he said, listen, all that stuff that gave me confidence before the world, even before God, is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and having a righteousness that's not my own, not a righteousness that I've constructed, but a righteousness that, that's been given to me, that is in Christ, right? That my life is hid in Christ above, and um, that God looks upon him and he pardons me, right? If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, you've linked up to Christ by faith, that right now there is a banner hanging over you that is love, and there is a banner over you that says there is now no condemnation for you. I made my living for 13 years walking around that campus, and I remember every brick on that campus, I can promise you that. And I walked around that campus looking at students saying, you are okay in Christ. You are okay in Christ. You are okay in Christ. Actually, you're a lot more than okay in Christ. You're absolutely righteous, right? 
Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness, and he had put that on, and he knows if you're going to stand firm in this fallen and broken world, right, you better put on that breastplate of righteousness. You are, righteousness, you are righteous in Christ. Um, I don't imagine that there's a person in this room that has not been touched by the, by the, the tragicness of dementia. Somebody, maybe somebody you love, somebody in your family, you've had to watch suffer uh, through dementia. Um, I have, and I imagine everybody in this room has, and it is awful to watch somebody that you love and you care for all of a sudden forget places, and then they start to forget names, and they start to, they start to forget faces, uh, uh, your names, even your name, right? But the most tragic thing of it all is when they forget who they are. That's the saddest part. And I think that as Christians, it is so easy, we can slip into forgetting who we are in a nanosecond. And Paul's like, you got to remember who you are. you got to know that you are righteousness, in, you are found in Christ. God comes upon you in Christ. He sees you in Christ. He looks at you in Christ. It's all about you, you being in him. The other thing that he says for us, to be, if you want to stand firm, he says this, that you got to... He says, follow my example there in verse 17. Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's always saying stuff like that. And i got to be honest with you, it's always bothered me a little bit when he says something like that. Because it, it, it just has this, to me, this hint of arrogance when he says it. Like, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And um, I get uncomfortable with that because... As a, as, a, as a young campus minister, and I actually really still struggle with this, but I'm struggling with it even right now in front of you. But I remember as a young campus minister saying to an older campus minister, sure, just going, and I'm, because there'd be groups of people like this, and I'm up there teaching, and people are taking notes, and they're really listening and stuff like that. And let me assure you this, when I was at Wake Forest University, I never wrestled with being the smartest one in the room, okay? And, um, and, <laughs> And I'm sitting there, and people are listening and even taking notes and, and talking to me. I travel around a lot, and um, one of the things, I was in my early 30s when I first got here. We had these two little children. I travel all over the country right now, and, uh, and wherever I go, there's, there's former students that I see. Even just walking in the hall, there was a form, one of my former, Bridget, and his, her husband and their child right there. And, um, and I, I talk to the students, and they'll look at me, and they'll just go, um, my goodness, Kevin, it's really striking me. I, they, I can't tell you how many times people have said this. I said, Kevin, what's dawning on me is that you are exactly the same age. Uh, the, when, the age we are now is the age you were when you were at Wake Forest. And they'll say, Kevin, we thought you knew everything. <laughs> and now they're like my age, and they, have, and they go, now we realize you were just making it all up. And I said, I probably really was. And... Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're just scrambling, you know. Um, I do have a point with that illustration. <laughs> is that I, t I looked at this older campus minister as a younger campus minister, and I just go, where in the world do I get off telling anybody how to live the Christian life? Like, I'm a train wreck, you know. I don't have this figured out, right? Where, how in the world am I ever going to look at somebody and say, follow me? You've got to be joking. And like, how does Paul even, this is what he told me, I'll never forget it. He just said, you know what, Kevin? 
we minister to others the way that Peter and Paul ministered to others. They were all, sure, they were saying, follow me as I follow Christ. But you know what they were also saying all the time? Is he, here's a trustworthy saying, Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst, right? Even Paul in this passage, he says, you know, he just says, I'm not perfect. I haven't attained all this. He says that right here. I think that's one of the most encouraging verses in the whole Bible. Here's the Apostle Paul, and you know, one of the things these false teachers were running around saying during this day is that you could actually get to a point in the Christian life where you didn't struggle anymore, where you didn't sin anymore, right? I mean, he is taking that head on, right? He is saying, I have not arrived. Um, I don't have this all figured out yet. I haven't been made perfect yet. Um, and so he's repudiating that idea. He's saying to his right, I struggle with this too. You know, Paul wrote Romans 7 right? He says, the good things I know I should be doing, I struggle with doing them. And the things that I don't, I know I shouldn't be doing, I struggle because I want to do those things, right? Who's going to rescue me from this body of death, wretched man that I am, right? That's how we minister to each other. Hey, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm the chief of sinners, right? I don't have this figured out yet. And here's, here's what I think is great about this. Paul is saying, follow that example, and you and I need people like that in our life. Do you have people like that in your life? Like people who are more mature maybe in the faith with you, they've been, than you, they've been walking with Christ a little bit longer with you, and they're looking at you and saying, hey, listen, I don't have this all figured out yet. I'm struggling with the Christian life, and I'm pressing on. Follow me as I follow, as I, as I follow Christ. You need people like that in your life. And here's the thing is as you grow in the Christian life, and here's the challenge for some of you here this morning, is that as you grow, you need to become one of those people where, like, you've got your hand on somebody, right, that, and they're looking at you saying that, and then you're looking at somebody else saying, hey, follow me as I follow, watch me struggle with this, watch me wrestle with God in this, follow me as I follow Christ, right? You've got to have people like that in your life, okay? That's the second point that he has there. The third thing, he has this reminder that's kind of heavy, and he, in verses 18 and 19, this reminder of how worldliness ends in destruction. And I think one of the things that makes this passage so heavy is he's not talking about pagans. He's not talking about people out there, but he's talking about people in. The reason that he's in tears, he says, is because these are people who claim to love God. But they're, they're actually so worldly that he, does, he can describe them as enemies of the cross. Like, it's possible for you to be in this room and be all around the Christian stuff, singing these hymns, listening to the Word of God, but yet you can be in such opposition to the reality of the cross and kind of be so anti that stuff that you're an, you're, you're an enemy of the cross, enemy of Christ. And, and it, it just, it ought to make us all do sort of a litmus test, like, well, how do I, could that be me? Let's do some self-inventory here, some self-examination and how do you know? Well, it says here, one of the ways you know is that you have your mind set on earthly things. And what that means is you're just wrapped up in the things of this life. You know, um, you're driven by your appetites. Um, that's what it means when he says your God is your belly. Right there, their, their God is their belly. You're, you're wrapped up in this world. You're driven by your appetites. I don't know, maybe he is absolutely talking about food here. You know, maybe gluttony really is what he's trying to... Cause, like food, it's like anything. Food is a great thing. But when it becomes a God in your life, it can become, it's a terrible thing. Um, 
it's very easy for us to use something like food. I mentioned this, the umheimlich, and we all wrestle with not being at home yet, this not at homeness. We're longing for this home. It's easy to take something like food to try to satisfy that er eternal longing that we have, right? We call it comfort food, right? Um, it's easy. Food can be a place we go for comfort. Um, and I actually, hey, I ripped off Ben Milner with this illustration. <laughs> and, um, and Ben Milner's a great friend of mine. Y'all know Ben. And I'm um, at Salem Prez. And uh, here's a funny story about my children. I was teaching my children. They were little bitty, I'm telling you, when we lived here. And uh, the nursery, car seats pulling up out there, it just, I'm very ADD. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're, we're teaching, like, catechism stuff. Who is God and how big is God and things like that. And uh, it I think it actually might have been Kennedy who's in this room. And she said, is God as big as Ben Milner? <laughs> she really said that. I mean, he's just such a, he's so tall and just so great and, and gives great illustrations. I got this from him. Y'all have heard of The Onion? Um, this kind of sarcastic, satirical, you know, website, and they, they give these fake news stories. Here's the headlines of this fake news story. Giant burrito solves all of man's problems for six precious minutes. <laughs> That's the headline. And actually, it's Greensboro, North Carolina. According to sources at a local Cadoba, 31-year-old advertising sales associate Anthony Garrett is about to purchase an extra-large burrito that will completely resolve every concern, burden, and troublesome issue in his life for six blissful minutes. <laughs> reports, reports confirm that upon taking his first bite, Garrett will be spared any guilt for not calling his parents more often and given resolution to his recent fight uh, with his girlfriend after filling with his cup with soda, sitting down and peeling back his dinner's aluminum foil wrapper, Garrett entered a world where only one thing exists, a healthy, uh, uh, not healthy, uh, a delicious, savory burrito. And, I mean, that, that's funny, and we laugh about that. And you think about him saying in this passage that their God is their belly, and you're, that's like the seat of your desires. It's your gut, you know, your heart. And you know this. Like, you can, you can medicate on anything. I mean, you can medicate on anything. Like, where do you go for comfort? Where, where do you go to try to deal with the fact that you're not at home yet? Um, it, where do you go for your six precious minutes? Right? Because um, what gluttony of anything, it, it makes us forget who we are. It and it, what it does is it deadens our longing for the new world. Um, and ultimately makes us an enemy of the cross, this says. What it ultimately will do is makes the cross distasteful to you. And you start giving God the Heisman. You start stiff-arming God so you can go be with your precious, whatever that is for you. And you know how the, you know the addiction cycle, how it goes? It ends in destruction. Because, you know, we got the God-shaped hole in our heart that only God is, you know, like Augustine says, I'm going to be restless until I find my rest in you, you know? Only eternity is going to satisfy. Nothing on this earth is going to ever satisfy. So it just takes more and more and more of whatever that substance is until it ultimately just destroys you. That's the warning, right? And, but Paul uh, pushes back against that um, with this fourth thing. And he's, he says, he, this is a great reminder, but, but 
There's better things in store for you because your citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 20, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His. And I love it when he just says, your citizenship is in heaven. And when, when the Apostle Paul says, talks about heaven here, he is talking about something absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. The new heavens and the new earth. And I think that this whole idea is really one of the most undertaught aspects and parts of Christian theology. I really think this. Um, my father passed away in 2015 at 67 years old. Um, after a four-year battle of cancer, the year I moved from Winston-Salem to Nashville, Tennessee, my father passed away. And he knew the Lord, and I actually was able to officiate and, and, and preach at his funeral service um, with, with, with great confidence because he knew the Lord. And what, but what, what Paul is talking about here when he says, you're citizens of heaven, you know, right now my father is more alive than he's ever been. And he is in the presence of Jesus, and he is lost in wonder and love and praise and adoration of his creator um, with all the other believers that have died in the Lord. And Tripp Sanders, you know, and they're more alive than, we, than any of us in this room, okay? But what Paul is talking about here is even something more than what my dad is experiencing right now at this moment, okay? And um, the Christian hope for heaven is about this whole new world. And what the scriptures talk about is this very tangible, gritty, physical, earthy. I mean, it's not, when Paul talks about heaven here, he's not talking about something we're all going to go up to, but it's talking about this heaven that's going to come down to this earth, right? Like, I remember when I realized that for the first time as a new Christian. And I, cause, and I was so excited and really glad about that because all I ever thought about heaven is that we were going to kind of be these disembodied intelligences with wings and halos floating on clouds. And I, it didn't thrill me a lot, right? But this is something totally different than that. The, the hope of the, of the Christian is this real physical um, earth, new heavens and new earth. And it says here that Paul, that Jesus on that day is going to subject all things to himself that he's going to restore all nature, he's going to re reconcile people and races, um, he's going to heal souls, and he's going to resurrect bodies. Um, there's this amazing passage um, in John 15 where G Jesus is praying to the Father in front of the disciples, and he says, Father, I want them to have the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Come on, y'all. Listen, I was at Wake Forest University all those years, and some of the families that I got, and some of the wealth I was around, and I just, and I, I think about, what if, I read that, and I just think, man, if, some, if there were some of those parents that just said, hey, Kevin, I want you to have the glory that my son's going to have one day, it'd be, I, I can't get my mind around it, you know, <laughs> and I, I'm willing to try, but, <laughs> but can you imagine this, like that, I Jesus' prayer and, and his hope, and it's a real hope, it's not wishful thinking, is that you're going to have the glory that he had the, with the Father before the foundation of the world. If, if you're a Christian here, this, that's your destiny. Like, that's where this train is headed. And, and that is what you and I are longing for. And I'm t I sat next to you, and that guy woke up in me. 
That's what we're after. That's what we were built for. And nothing is going to satisfy us until we fall into his arms on that day. He says here that we, we await a Savior. And he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. I mean, I need to be reminded of that every day. Um, this word await, uh, what that word means is this persistent yearning, this longing, this groaning like creation. And, and what we're waiting for is to be fit for the new creation. Um, at the end of my father's life, um, he couldn't even hold his head up. He couldn't speak. Um, he could barely open his eyes. And I remember watching my father in hospice care in those last days and, and being very, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a powerful moment seeing my father that I know and love in that shape and knowing and, and seeing his mortality. But it also was really the first time, I think, and certainly in that powerful way that I also realized Kevin Teasley's mortality. Because one day it's going to be me laying there, right? None of us are going to escape that. But what this passage says is that, you know what, one day my father's soul is going to be reunited with his body. And he's going to have a glorious body. And one day he's going to be able to see again. He's going to be able to speak again. He's going to be able to get up out of that bed. And even one day Kevin Teasley is going to rise again with a glorious body like Jesus. That's unbelievable. That's what is on hold for us here, on offer here, right here. And if you want to stand firm, I th I'll tell you one more story. Let me check my time. We're doing good. Um, as my father was, was passing away, um, throughout my, my middle school, high school, and college years, my father owned a dry cleaners down in central Mississippi. And let me tell you what, it was hot. Um, and, and there was a lady, her name was Ruby, and she had been pressing clothes at my dad's dry cleaners way before my dad owned it, okay? Um, she didn't have a high, high school education. She wasn't allowed for, for most of her childhood to go to, into the Itala County Library because of the color of her skin. She was one of the smartest, most brilliant, wise women that I've ever known and godliest women that I've ever known. And, and I became a Christian my junior year in college. And, and at that, you know, just all kind of things woke up in me. And all I wanted to do was talk to Ruby about Jesus and about the gospel and listen to her talk and pray. And, and I would leave, and Rosie's not here this morning, but I'm not kidding, we were dating, and there'd be times I'd, burn, I'd bust it to get home from college, and definitely one, I'd drive it home from St. Louis sometimes, and I would be doing everything I could to get home before the cleaners closed so that I could sit back there and talk to Ruby. And then there'd be Saturdays, I'd go, I'd go to her house, and we'd just sit there and talk, and we'd fight about theology and all that stuff, and she'd say, you better keep talking to me, boy, because I'm not going to let seminary squeeze that heart out of you. <laughs> That's what she'd tell me. <laughs> and uh, she, that's what she'd say. She goes, I'm so scared that, that seminary is going to take your love out. And uh, I don't think that happened. I think she was wrong on that point. But, um, but it was really a lot of fun. And she was a godly woman. And she loved, she loved us. We loved her. And, um, and as my dad was there in hospice care, um, my, she could not come to his funeral and visit him because of just illness in her own life. And, um, and was not able to, you know, leave and that sort of thing. And so my mom was sitting beside my dad there in hospice care, and she goes, Kevin, I think you, better, you ought to go call Ruby. And I said, so absolutely. So I stepped out in the hall. I got her number. And, I would, hey, here's a man, Ruby. She loved Maya Angelou. 
And um, she loved Maya Angelou. And I was, at, I was at Wake Forest back when Maya was still teaching there. And she, there was one class that she would teach every year. And I always had one student or two that was in that class. And they would do a big recital. Uh, like, like they would, you, part of the class was you would write poetry. And then you would recite it to the class. And so I would go sit in and, and listen to the students read their poetry in front of Maya. And so one day I got there a, a little bit early because I bought a book, in the, uh, a Maya Angelou book in the bookstore. And I knew Maya was going to be there. And, um, and so I, sn- I got there real early, and it was really one of the most powerful moments of my life ever. And um, because I walk in the back door, and Maya's sitting right here. We're the only two people in the room. And, and I, I go up to her, and I have this book because I want her to sign it in, to Ruby and so that I can take it to her. And, um, and so I go down there, and I take her, and I, I, I'm a nervous wreck. And, um, and, I, and I, I introduce myself to her, and she's sitting in this chair. And she stood up, and she took me by the hand, and she said, what was your name again? And I'll never do a great Maya Angelou imitation, but I'm going to try. And she took me by the hand, and she said, and I said, it's such an honor to meet you, Dr. Angelou. Um, I was wondering if you'd sign this book. And she stood up out of that chair, and she just goes, Mr. Teasley, let me assure you that the pleasure is all mine. (laughs) It was unbelievable. I've left my point here. Um, <laughs> my point is, I, I got, she signed this book for Ruby, and Kennedy was with me, and my younger, and my children, we went, we went down to, to Mississippi, and oh my gosh, giving that book to Ruby was like one of the greatest days of, of my entire life, and um, it just thrilled her, and uh, it was really, it really was perfect, but my dad is dying, my mom says, you better go call Ruby, so I go, and I call her, and I, she answers, and I say, Ruby, this is Kevin, and she said, oh, Kevin, I know when I saw your number on my phone, I know why you're calling me. I'd heard that your, I'd heard that your father wasn't doing well. Um, I said, yeah, Ruby, he's not doing good. I don't know if he's even going to last throughout the day. And, and Ruby, whenever she would get excited and just, like, when, when she was feeling full, you know, and and feeling, and when she was really going to hit me with, the, with some point, you know, <laughs> confront me even with something, I, she'd get full, and, and, uh, and her voice would get real raspy, and, um, and so she, she says, she paused, and then she just goes, all right, Kevin, and it, as soon as I heard that tone in her voice, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be good, and she just goes, Kevin, you go in there and tell Teasley, that's what she called my dad, she goes, you go in there. And you tell Teasley that right now he's in the valley of the shadow of death. But you tell Teasley we're not scared of shadows. Death is just a shadow. And Jesus is on the other side. You tell him it's time to go home. We're citizens of heaven. And you want to stand firm in a life that's tragic and painful and hard and difficult, you want to be able to stand even in front of the greatest enemy, death, you need to know this. This world is not your home. You're a citizen of heaven. You're sons and daughters of the king. Death is just a shadow, and Jesus is waiting on the other side. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Um, Father, um, I've experienced every emotion on the planet um, in the last hour. And... um, and your word speaks to every one of them. And um, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for this church. 
I'm thankful for these people. Uh, I think about the, the lives that have been changed in this room over a lot of years. And um, the ripple effects of, the, of those changes um, are, still, are still going on around the world, literally. And um, I pray that that's not, that's not lost on me this morning, and I pray it's not lost on the members of this body. And I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the, the, your Savior, the message of the gospel that this church so strongly believes and has held forth. And so I pray that some of the truth and beauty and power of this passage is seeped in. And even as we go now to your table, and, and as we feast with Jesus in a unique and a special way, that uh, you would give us power to stand firm and help us to, to walk with Jesus, uh, to feast on him, uh, that, that he would be in us and we would be in him as we partake of this bread and the cup. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.